Welcome to the world according to Boyer, where we bring top investors, best-selling authors, and market newsmakers to show you the smartest ways to uncover value in the stock market. I am your host, Jonathan Boyer. To be sure you never miss another episode, please follow us on Twitter at Boyer Value. Today's guest is best-selling author Scott Turow. Scott started his career as an assistant U.S. attorney. After leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office, Scott authored 10 best-selling works of fiction that have sold over 30 million copies. One of his books, Presumed Innocent, was turned into a major motion picture starring Harrison Ford. His latest book is Testimony, which can be purchased wherever books are sold. For more information on Scott, please visit scottterow.com. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. I uh, first wanted to talk about, and this is a show that caters to business, is Amazon. And as a legal expert, former president of the Authors Guild, and someone who I would imagine made a good portion of your living as an author, you're uniquely qualified to discuss their impact on publishing. In fact, in the past, you called them the Darth Vader of publishing. Does that view still hold true? Yeah. I mean, Amazon is so big by now that it's hard to paint with a single brush. But if you talk about Amazon's activities vis-a-vis publishing, you're talking about behavior that, if it didn't stray over the line to illegal, it certainly raised a lot of chalk dust. And I think Amazon's a great company. I think they have superior software. They've obviously got outstanding management. When it came to the book business, though, They gained their foothold by engaging in predatory pricing. And even the Second Circuit, that in affirming antitrust division's case against Apple and the publishers, the defense largely had to do with Amazon's behavior. And the Second Circuit said, well, basically, two rights don't make a wrong. But they referred to Amazon as a corporate bully. And that's a quote. And that certainly was the nature of their behavior. What Amazon did to gain their foothold in the book market was to get publishers to agree to the simultaneous release of a digital edition of the same book that the publishers were selling in hardcover. What the publishers didn't realize was going to happen was that Amazon would then sell that digital edition for a steep discount from the price of the hardcover book. Amazon got the publishers to agree by paying the publishers the same thing for the digital edition that they were paying for the hardcover, which meant, as incredible as it may sound, Amazon was losing 2 to $5 every time they sold a Kindle edition of a hardcover book. The effect of doing that was manifold and all of it anti-competitive. First of all, by selling books at a loss, they prevented other competitors from entering the market. Second, by selling digital copies at a loss, they lured people into buying Kindles and away from the physical bookstores. And Again, because it was a loss leader, so-called, they prevented bookstores, for example, from selling digital books. And so they both fractured 
the regular retail market and prevented competitors from coming in against them. So where does the line go from being a good business decision versus anti-competitive behavior? Or is it kind of a gray area? First of all, I have to take my hat off to their lawyers because they have really great legal advice. And as I said, they sort of thread the needle on this one because the court, which deemed the behavior that the publishers and Apple engaged in, in response to be unlawful, pretty clearly was saying Amazon's behavior was unlawful too, but nobody ever sued them for it. So they got away with it. And, you know, I guess as a litigating attorney, my response is, well, good work by the lawyers. As a reader and a citizen who's watched three to 4,000 independent bookstores go out of business as a result, my view is not as sanguine. So I don't know if you've had a chance to read Lena Khan's terrific Yale Law Journal review note entitled Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. I did. So do you have a thought on the company as a whole? I mean, what you're saying with the book publishing doesn't seem to be a unique case. I mean, they famously, when diapers.com refused to sell themselves to them, basically lowered the cost of diapers to the tune of they would lose $100 million over three months just to get diapers.com to sell themselves to them. Can you make a case that the entire business model is anti-competitive? I could make that case, but not with the same kind of information that I have to make that case vis-a-vis publishing. In other words, I understand the publishing market. I've been involved in it since 1L was published in 1977. And I think I know what I'm talking about. I don't know anything about the diaper market. I can tell you it sounds a hell of a lot like what they did in the book business. And, you know, Lena Khan's perspective is, I think, a really important one. To an extraordinary extent, more so than other areas of the law, the development of antitrust doctrine has been responsive to sort of political whims. So the current view in antitrust law is that if it's good for consumers, it can't be anti-competitive. And there are two problems with that. One is that it tends to be incredibly short-sighted, so that if the effect is what has happened in the book business, where Amazon first wiped out bookstores and then started opening its own, you're obviously diminishing consumer choice, not enhancing it. Beyond that, though, there's the perspective that Lena Khan offers and that my friend, the historian T.J. Stiles offers, which is to say the main purpose of our antitrust laws from their inception has been to prevent the acquisition of power in private hands beyond a certain point where it can begin to affect the market and choices in a way that ultimately is certainly true with books, diminishes the effectiveness of the democracy. So when you end up having a company that is so powerful that they have the power to diminish rather than enhance consumer choice, and that choice is being made by consumers unnaturally, then you've got a bad situation. And I believe Lena Khan's note will end up within a decade changing the view of antitrust law. Do you think under the current administration, which clearly 
doesn't like Bezos on a personal level, this will change anything in the not too distant future? Well, we ended up with the ironic situation that the Obama administration was far more interested in what's good for consumers than what's good for the marketplace. And as I say, it's ironic because obviously Barack Obama's first trip to national prominence came as an author, not as a politician. But obviously the Trump administration, just by having a more pro-business view, is more hospitable to the anti-Amazon point of view. I am not, of course, very happy about the idea that they would act in order to punish Jeff Bezos because the president doesn't like what gets printed in the Washington Post. As far as I'm concerned, that is not a proper basis for the administration to act upon. And if they act for that reason, uh, I'm going to be really disappointed. Continue to believe that the First Amendment and freedom of expression is more important than anything else in a democracy. And just to be clear, I share your same view as that would be a horrible basis for bringing the case. But in terms of reality, he's on record as really hinting towards some sort of action against Amazon. In fairness, he's been talking about Amazon. He began talking about it on the campaign trail before he was president. So I do think the administration, for bad reasons, but for good ones, is aware of how much power is concentrated in the hands of the internet behemoths, Mm -hmm. not just Amazon, but Google and Facebook and Apple. And they worry about that as ultimately being anti-democratic and confined to those boundaries, those are actually reasonable concerns. I hope you are enjoying the interview so far. To receive a complimentary electronic copy of Harriman's book of investing rules, please go to www.boyervaluegroup.com forward slash ebooks. Now back to the show. I just wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about the business of publishing. And for those in, in our audience who don't know the exact role of a publisher, can you just briefly explain their primary function? A publisher is basically a venture capitalist. An author comes to a publisher with a manuscript and a publisher says, I will underwrite the costs of bringing this book to the public. I will pay to print it. I will use my distribution system of salespersons to get it into bookstores. I will pay for marketing by way of advertising, and I will pay for editing so that the book becomes a better book. So in this age of Twitter and Facebook, where authors, uh, songwriters, etc., can directly connect with their audience, particularly in books, how come best-selling authors like yourself don't self-publish because what publishers are doing certainly does not come cheap? No, it doesn't come cheap, but publishers are still a good deal for best-selling authors. And what you're pointing out, to some extent, indicates the bind that publishers are in when it comes to best-selling authors. Because best-selling authors could presumably go direct to the public through their own websites, publishers tend to pay them 
a greater share of the profits than they are entitled to by traditional royalty formulas. So, for example, one of the fights that the Authors Guild has been having with publishers for years is that the royalty on an ebook is 25% of the net, which is roughly half of what publishers pay on hardcover books, which is much closer to 50% of the net. If you could somehow drill into publishers' books, you would find that best-selling authors get an effective royalty greater than the 25% of the net on their digital books. So it's a very complicated ecology and hard to understand. I would imagine that these are all highly confidential agreements. They're all confidential. And, you know, a lot of these are publicly traded companies. And there are good analysts who've gotten into it and been able to come up with real numbers. So what I'm saying is not simply speculative, Mm -hmm. but I have been blessed to be able to say for 30 years now, being a best-selling author is a great gig. No, it sounds like a fantastic gig. And if you had a guess, what would the delta be between a best-selling author and someone else who is, you know, getting their first foray into a major publishing house in terms of a percentage? Are they getting double the percentage? Well, if we're talking simply about ebooks, we're saying it's 25%. I would guess the delta is probably close to 50%, but that's just a pure guess. You also have to bear in mind that the royalty on hardcover books, which is traditionally escalates to 15% of the cover price, for the same reason publishers can afford to pay more than that, even though their actual agreement with the author may not say so. In return for the right to publish your book, the publisher will pay you an advance against earnings. And you have a really bad agent if your advance equals your actual royalty earnings. You should be, if you're a best-selling author, getting more than that, even though what the contract says would seem to lead you to believe that the publisher should be paying you less. Some of these tech behemoths like Amazon and Netflix are spending an absurd amount of money to create original content. For example, Amazon recently adopted Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan into a television show. Is this a golden age for content creators like yourself? I would certainly say so. I mean, after avoiding Hollywood for years, I mean, I'd sell my books and wave bye-bye. For the last five or six years, I've written at least one script every year for TV. And, you know, nothing has ended up getting picked up, but it's still been financially worthwhile to do that. And I've got two projects going right now. So yeah, it's definitely a good time for content creators. TV being the favored medium for writers these days over the movies, because the movie business has contracted so much. So another question, obviously, you've been practicing law since the 80s. Recently, there's been, probably in the last 10 years, an overabundance of people attending law school, leading to an oversupply of lawyers. Yeah. How do you see the legal profession evolving over time? First of all, it's characterized by ferocious competition at the moment. A lot of the oversupply of lawyers has to do with the for-profit law schools, which mill out law graduates who then can't get a job anywhere else. 
So there are too many law schools. Some of them have started constraining the supply of their graduates. Places like Northwestern Law School has done that. And within the legal world, as I said, there's tremendous competition. And as in every other industry, it's becoming globalized. Why pay $175,000 a year in New York to an associate to do legal research that a very bright law-trained individual in India who's familiar with the common law system can be doing for a fraction of that price. So that is beginning to happen. And I'm sure that, you know, document review as well as legal research will begin to become offshored. Do you ever see the billable hour kind of going away? Well, I've argued for many years that it should. And I think generally speaking, clients have gotten on that train. You know, they want to pay lawyers for results rather than for spinning their wheels. And I'm very sympathetic to that. You know, the problem with the billable hours, it really puts the lawyer in conflict with the client. Your reward is directly increased by being inefficient, overcomplicating things, and even prolonging matters rather than resolving them as efficiently and expeditiously as possible. In the U.S., you know, non-lawyers can never own part of a law firm. Do you see that ever changing? Will you ever see a publicly traded law firm? I don't see it happening as quickly. But for example, if you take lobbyists in Washington, D.C., even non-lawyer lobbyists end up in roles that's equivalent to a partner in a law firm. They'll be in the firm. They'll be rewarded on a basis that's very closely related to the same formula used to reward the partners. So, you know, it's happening anyway, Jonathan. This is just my own curiosity. And, you know, today with text messaging, email, social media, people are writing more than ever before. But it seems like people are forgetting the rules of grammar as a result or while doing it. As an author, does this bother you? You know, the old fart in me is bothered. (laughs) What I am against is a resulting imprecision. And if people are texting each other with all of these, you know, damn autocorrect errors in it, not to mention the ones they insert on their own, you can sometimes sit there and look at a text and just have no idea what the person on the other side meant. It's like two people hollering at each other out of foxholes in the middle of a war zone. And context is lost too. Yeah. And, you know, the human presence and I remember a family therapist telling me a long time ago that she advises her clients never to try to resolve family problems through email because so much gets lost without faces and voices. In terms of your writing process, you know, the hardest part for me, and I mean, where we do publishing, but for financial research is is getting past that blank sheet of paper. It's frustrating and almost you know, impossible to overcome. How do you do that? Having been writing seriously for well over 50 years, the blank sheet of paper is my friend. And it's sort of a, to be a little highfalutin, it's sort of an extension of my soul. And it's the way in which I engage in the kind of conversation with myself that writing always starts out as. And in terms of writing, I, I was listening to an interview you did, and I was surprised to hear you write on an iPad. Certainly that's not my first choice, but when I'm on an airplane, when I'm away from home, I will write on an iPad. 
and I have a portable keyboard attached to it. You know, the truth of the matter is that text is incredibly efficient and doesn't consume much memory. And so even a small device like an iPad can be pretty effective as a writing instrument. But in terms of the creativity of actually writing, is a blank sheet of paper and a pen the best way to do it? You know, how do you sit? I mean, I heard Daniel Silva basically sits in a room by himself and just puts pen to paper and writes for days. Like, how do you do it? I sit in front of a keyboard. I was taught by a high school journalism teacher who stressed the importance for would-be reporters of being able to compose at the keyboard. And he got to me at a formative time in my life. And when I started writing fiction instead of doing journalism, that's how I composed. I have written longhand very rarely. I have tried to use dictation software without great success when I had an injury to one arm. But for the most part, if I have my fingers on a keyboard, again, I feel like that kind of fundamental communication with you know that harp string in my chest is taking place. So last year you released your book, Testimony. It's you know sold very well. Love to hear a little bit about it. How'd you come up with the idea? In the year 2000, I went to The Hague. As somebody who's been lucky enough to have his books published in many languages, I've been in book tours, on book tours in many countries around the world. And I was on book tour in Holland. Ended up in The Hague because the American ambassador there was kind enough to have a reception for me. And at this reception, I found myself surrounded by a lot of young American lawyers who were working at the many different criminal tribunals that operate in The Hague. And they were all saying to me, you've got to write a book about this place. You've got to write a book about this place. And as I listened to their reasoning uh, about the nature of the cases and you know the expatriate life in The Hague, it actually sounded really good to me. And I that's usually when people say, you got to write a book about this, they're talking about their divorce. And it's hardly as interesting to anybody else. But the suggestion I got in The Hague seemed to make a lot of sense and stuck with me. And about now, four or five years ago, I began writing my Hague novel, as it were, and that turned into testimony. And you have any other books coming out in the you know, next year or so? Well, I'm at work on a novel now called The Last Trial, which is about the last trial of an 86-year-old trial lawyer named Sandy Stern, who's been a character in many, many of my novels and was Rusty Savage's defense lawyer and presumed innocent. So Stern is saddling up for the last time and defending an old friend, a Nobel Prize winner accused of a fraud in connection with an anti-cancer drug. Well, I look forward to reading it as I do all of your books. And I really appreciate your time. Testimony can be bought wherever books are sold. I encourage you to visit scottterow.com. And Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been great talking with you.